Hello and welcome to Tops 10 brought to you by KTXT Radio and the College of Media Communication at Texas Tech University in beautiful Lubbock. Tops 10 seeks out successful and influential people in politics and government, the many professions, the physical and social sciences, or the arts and humanities and asks them to reveal their lives, ideas, and ideals through their playlist. Our format is simple. We ask our guests what pieces of music mean the most to them and to tell us the story behind the infatuation. Mr. Derek Ginter is our producer engineer. I'm David Perlmutter, a professor at and dean of the college and the originator and host of Tops 10. Today, I have with me a special friend, Mr. Morris Wilkes. Mr. Morris Wilkes was born in Lubbock and grew up on a farm in northern Lubbock County. Is that farm still there, or is that... Uh, it is. It's not... Uh, uh, residential housing. Uh, no, it's it's still there. Not in the family, but uh, still there. Cotton. Cotton, primarily. When we lived there, and my dad was a farmer, we uh, primarily grew cotton, but also grain sorghum milo. Uh, and then I had a uh, hog operation where I raised red Duroc hogs. That must have been fun. Well, I enjoyed it. Uh, did you, did you it, do the 4-H type thing? Uh, yeah, FFA. Yeah, FFA, okay. Uh, Future yeah. Farmers of yeah. America. And I always like to tell people, they said, well, why didn't you go into farming? And I said, well, when I was 17 years old, I was selling hogs for 17 cents a pound on the hoof. And what that means is you take the hog to market and you sell the whole hog. And they they bought it at 17 cents. And I was going to the grocery store the next day and buying them back for $1.95 a pound. And I figured I was on the wrong end of that economic equation. So I did Something was happening in between those two transactions. (laughs) That's right. right. And so I decided that that farming was probably not in my future. Morris attended public schools in Abernathy and is a graduate of, of Texas Tech, including our college or what was was then our school. He spent 13 years in the radio broadcasting business. He served for eight years as executive assistant to State Senator John T. Monfort and also served as the chief clerk of the Texas Senate State Affairs Committee. He also served as vice president of public affairs for Cox Communications. Currently, he is owner of the Wilkes Company, a strategic communications, public affairs, and political consulting firm. He is also a public speaker, conducting seminars and speeches in a variety of topics. You served President George W. Bush and the White House as a lead president advance representative so you were the advance guy one of many yeah so you showed up somebody was going to give the candidate or then the president was going to give a speech wherever wherever in Abernathy in Abernathy and you showed up seven days ahead and the speech was supposed to be in the high school, but they forgot to tell the high school. What do you do? Uh, you uh, go visit with the superintendent and the principal and charm them. And uh, Generally, we didn't have any problems getting venues for uh, our events. Uh, and most of those were worked out prior to our arrival from the, the White House or the campaign, as it was. and uh, You had to ensure att- attendance, though, right? Uh, that was part, part of it. It wasn't just me. We had a team. Uh, our particular team would, would be anywhere from probably a minimum of four people up to as many as 10 or 12 people, depending on the nature of the trip. Were there multiple stops? Were there multiple events? Was it an overnight stay? Uh, you know, what was the nature? Was it an in and out, or it was just at the airport? Then it, you know, had a different uh, number of people working it. But in addition to the actual advance team from the White House or the campaign, you then had an advance team from the Secret Service and then all the various components of the White House. The issue is, is when the President of the United States travels, 
you have to establish the White House wherever he or she may be going. You and I have jobs, and except for maybe thinking about what we're going to do tomorrow or maybe cleaning up some work we didn't finish during the day, when we go home at night, we generally aren't working, at least on our day job. But under the Constitution, the President of the United States is the President 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So wherever he or she is, that individual has to be able to perform the constitutional duties of the office. So, so what is the entourage you're talking about for a president traveling to give a speech in a Texas high school? Probably a minimum of 60 people. Oh, that few. For some reason, I thought well, that would a be, minimum. Yeah, and there would be obviously there are more. That would be the advance group. Now, obviously, when he arrives, it's a larger contingent, but uh, you add to that number. But it's interesting at the White House, and this is something I really hadn't thought about until I got involved. The White House is really a military operation. The President of the United States, under the Constitution, is the Commander in Chief of the military, and so except for the personal staff. And basically, the uh, household staff at the at the White House, everything else associated at the White House is military. The United States Navy runs the food service, the Navy mess. The, so on the road too. So when you show up on the road too, on the so road. So there's Navy cooks. There, the Navy are, mess is a part of the advance team. Right. You have a the Army Signal Corps primarily, although all branches of services are represented, run the White House Communications Agency, and then you have divisions of that agency. You have audio the guys that set up the microphones and the loudspeakers you have, and any type of television or, or video prompting. You have communication, the presidential communications, secure videos, secure phone communications. All that is set up there. Anything involving communications is run by military personnel in the White House Communications Agency, which is a component of the White House Military Office, which then has airlift operations for Air Force One, for Marine One, and then for the component transport aircraft that move all the equipment necessary for the to both protect and serve the president wherever the president may be. So, and then you have the White House Medical Unit, which is military as well. And so it just keeps going and going. White House transportation is military. And so it, it goes, and then the Secret Service, and then whatever other, depending on the nature of the trip, if if a foreign dignitary is involved, a foreign leader or foreign dignitary, then the United States State Department is involved with an advanced team. So it, it can get pretty complex. So you have to coordinate with all of those parties. Right. And as the lead advance representative, you're kind of like the orchestra director. You're the conductor. And, but you have all these various instruments or activities going on, but you're, you're the conductor. So at some point during the day, generally at the end of the day, early evening, we all get back together and sat down with what we call a countdown meeting. And every day we go over the presidential schedule minute by minute, line by line, and each component, Secret Service, our staff, any other White House uh, agencies that are involved, communications, the uh, Air Force One, Marine One, transport, all have input into every aspect of the schedule and activities going on. So it's rather complex, a lot of pressure, uh, but it's really fun and exciting. I can imagine that also all of these people 
each believes that they individually are vitally important. <laughs> well, and and they are. It, it, it's yeah. amazing. Uh, uh, I, but it all has to be pulled off. It all has to be coordinated. Now, did you think uh, your uh, your farming background? By the way, both your parents were farmers, obviously. And, well, my uh, my dad actually uh, had a varied career. He joined the Navy after the attack in World War II at Pearl Harbor. And he served in the Pacific, ultimately was stationed at Schofield Barracks in Hawaii at Pearl Harbor, and then was uh, in Guam toward the end of the war. After the war, he came back to Lubbock and uh, was, prior to my birth, uh, several years prior to my birth, was a police officer at the Lubbock Police Department. And then uh, he quit that and went into the automotive business and was a in car sales for what was then a, a dealer in town named Bennett Motor Company. And then that led to the creation of a business that he co-owned with some other another individual called the 8th Street Trim Shop, which did upholstery work primarily on uh, interiors of automobiles. And then in the late 50s, when I was about five years old, we moved out to the farm in northern Lubbock County, and the rest is history, as they say. And my mom was, was a housewife. She had worked prior to the, my sister and I being born, but primarily for her dad, who had a used car business in town. Was there music in your household? Uh, yes, primarily uh, radio. I, I remember growing up that... Every morning when I got up, the television wasn't on, but the radio was on. And uh, so the music, primarily through the radio and as we would, you know, drive. And so I, I got fascinated with radio. And when I was working on the farm, I used to carry what was then called a transistor radio in my back pocket. Kids, look this up on Wikipedia. Yeah. Was the Trend. iPod before there yeah, was? Yeah, it was. And I still have, I actually have it in my office, the transistor radio I used to carry in my, my pocket as a kid. And that connected me to the world. That was my internet. That was my worldwide web in those days. And I listened to newscasts and learned about the stock market and learned about things and countries and, and was fascinated with news and broadcasting at a very young age. Your first song is David Gates and Bread, If. That song, I love the melody of it. I love the music of that song. And the words are interesting. But I, I was a big fan of the group David Gates and Bread. They had several hit records. And, and for those that did you own a record player? I did, did absolutely. Did you buy records? Yes, absolutely. Uh, records, those were those, uh, as we used to call them, stacks of wax. The uh, Big black CDs. Big black CDs, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there, there are a few records. There's a particular... Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, of holiday music, Christmas music, and there's one particular record we had as a child uh, by a group no one's ever heard of. It was a choral group, and I literally wore it out listening to it. In the it's the only one we had. But I remember as a child, before we moved out on the farm, I had one of these little portable uh, record players that played the little 45s, and um, my mom had gotten it. I think it's Sears and Roebuck, and had these little kitty albums, and not albums, but little children's records, and, and some of those were, were Christmas records, Jingle Bells, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, things like that, that I remember playing as a three and four, and I still have memories of that, sitting on the kitchen floor, having my mom plug it in and playing those records. So music was always a big part of my life. If a picture paints a thousand words, then why can't I? Words will never show 
to go There's no one home but you You're all that's left me to And when my love for life is running dry You come and pour yourself on me If a man could be two places at Beside you all the way If the world should stop with all things spinning slowly down to die I'd spend the end with you And when the world was through Then one by one Was there a particular kind of music that immediately, you said holidays, but was there, I mean, you were also listening to rock. Do you just like music? Or I like music, it, or, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it was very difficult for me to come up with 10 songs. And, and they're in no particular order. They're just 10 songs that have really had some sort of meaning in my life, but I could have probably listed 50 or a from all genres, from rock or top 40, from country, from gospel or religious, from holiday, jazz, classical, things that, that had some sort of uh, impact on me. You know, it's interesting. My wife and I talk about this sometimes on road trips while we're listening to music. A song will come on and we'll both start singing. I maybe haven't heard it in 15 years, but we know the words. And music has, has some sort of impact on us, both emotionally and psychologically, that we can remember words when we can't remember other things, but we can remember music. I still remember some of the commercial jingles from when I was a child, uh, which which in some ways fascinates me. You grew up at a time where, of course, you transistor radio, radio in the car. When you started working for candidate George W. Bush and then president, actually, he was the first iPod president. I remember there being stories about this. It was he was he ran right, and he would have an iPod, iPod. Mm-hmm. and so we had the first stories about what's your playlist, right? There, what's there, on your there, iPod? That yeah. were, was did everybody in the presidential plane have their own iPod? It was just the beginning of everybody sort of tuning in. Yes, <laughs> kind, well, not yes, kind. Because I'm thinking in, in, the, in the you know the the Eisenhower plane or or the the Lyndon Johnson plane. I wondered whether they played just something over the the sound system. Probably not. You know uh, the aircraft. Obviously, back in those days, were a little more noisy than 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 the current Air Force One is. But you know that's that's an interesting thing to think about is how technology has changed the way we enjoy music. And back when you and I were young kids, there was no way. Unless we, you know, were a Rockefeller or a, you know, a Vanderbilt or some well from a, some wealthy family that we could could 
garner together the collection of music that we probably now have on small electronic devices. Now, your next song is, is very, very famous, the, the Carpenter, brother and sister, the Carpenters, We've Only Just Begun. A lot of these songs not only touch me from a musical, you know, the, the melody, the music itself is nice in, in my view, uh, the words are interesting, but the titles kind of uh, speak to me, If. Now, that's primarily a love song. And my wife says I'm a romantic, and it probably reflects on some of these songs that I've selected. But I remember as a child out on the farm, it was just me, me and my transistor radio and a tractor or some other farm implement. And um, and so there were a lot of there's a lot of dreaming and a lot of what ifs and so if spoke and we've only just begun that song came out when i was in high school and i was just kind of beginning and so that spoke to me in the sense we've only just begun so what what does the future hold what's going to happen what am i going to do that sort of thing we've only just begun to and promises A kiss for luck and we're on our way When you were in high school, you, you said about the selling your pigs, noticing the uh, price differential there. But did you have any thoughts about a career besides the farm? Obviously, your father had had 
three or four careers, um, I guess those were laid out as, as options. Did you have any formative ideas about w- which direction you were going? Absolutely. I wanted to go into to journalism primarily. Radio was a big deal to me. I listened to a lot of radio stations. I got to know some of the announcers who, back in our day, uh, were pretty big deals. Uh, everybody had a favorite disc jockey or a favorite show that they listened to uh, on their favorite radio station. They could probably name all the various disc jockeys on the air, but maybe Casey Jones on KSEL was the their favorite, or maybe Oscar Love in the morning was their favorite, or, or, or Johnny May in the morning on KLBK radio. Those were some of the top 40 stations back in my time who, whose call letters no longer remain on radio in this market. But my uncle was in the broadcasting business. He was the farm director at KFYO and well-known around town as Big Ed. And, and so I just had a fascination with it. I studied it. I, I would go to the library and get all the kind of books that you could get about it. I listened to it. I listened to the radio stations at night from different parts of the country, from New Orleans, from Chicago, from Oklahoma City, from Denver. I listened to the border blaster radio stations on the border uh, across uh, the Texas border from Mexico, XCRF out of Del Rio. The Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack and all the various radio preachers and all the other kind of programs. You you had a a much more varied playlist at that time than most people do. I think a lot of people settle on particular genres, particular particular, genres. artist. Your next song is by Climax, Precious and, and Few. That's probably one of my favorite songs. I've played, I, I literally have played all of these songs on the radio as an announcer disc jockey. And now, let's, let's just take us back in time. Now, I, I, I watched and enjoyed an old TV show that, again, most of our student listeners would never have seen, maybe in reruns, WKRP in Cincinnati. That's true. So that, and I'm, that, I know. That had the stereotype that was fixed for a whole generation of what a disc jockey did, which was actually sit in the studio, and they were physical records records or tapes that you you know, you plugged in and say let's hear climax precious and few and That's you right. shoved in a tape or you put on a record shoot up a record and it played right and it was all physical mechanical process there there were no computers there was no everything was was mechanical and and now because of technology a radio station like this one doesn't really need a human being to operate it well, they just need a human being to program the computer. And the computer runs by itself for hours upon hours with no human supervision unless it were to crash or something. But back in those days, it was all done by a warm, living body. They were all mostly records, and you queued them up. You would put them on the turntable and, and take them right to the first sound and then turn turn it back about a half a turn and so when you hit the button for it to go it would start the music if you played a song too many times you would get what was called a cue burn at the very top of the song it sounded like a real bad scratch because you had cued it so many times, you'd literally damaged it in some way or another. How, how many uh, plays could you get out of one? Re- well, it, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, it just kind of depended. Obviously, the more popular ones that were hits at the time were that way, and, and and that's the way songs became hits. That's the way we found out about the Carpenters or the group Climax. The, you know, the Precious and Few is a one-hit wonder. They never had another hit, but we. Growing up, we learned about music and liked music that we heard on the radio. And to get an, get a song 
played on the radio was that the was the way, way to get a hit. Way to get a hit. There was no um, circuit, you know, right. talk shows or, or I mean, actually, right. as I understand it, would be aspirant. Uh, and you saw that the movie Coal Miner's Daughter right. did mm-hmm. a good job of showing this. They would drive from town to town and go to the local disc jockey right. and be interviewed and play the play. song, and 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 you'd hope that it would start getting attention and then it would be part of become part of a playlist obviously having been in the broadcasting business uh i have a extensive collection of record albums and 45s a lot of them are stamped promo copy only not for resale which were uh, the promotional copies that the record companies passed out to the radio stations hoping they would play them on the air precious and few are the moments we two can share And if I can't find my way back home, it just wouldn't be fair. Precious and few are the moments we took in I don't know. Do you think the Carpenters and Debbie Boone are? They're probably categorized under easy listening. Do you yeah, think, I, I would say you, most of these. There's a couple in here that aren't, but I would say most of these would would be um, classified in what was back in those days the musical format, Matt, called M O R, middle of the road, soft rock. Uh, well, we would we would call it more soft rock today. That was not a terminology that was used in broadcasting back when I was in it. This would this would these would fit more the M O are middle of the road standards your next song is debbie boone you light up my life let's just hear it in a moment i've got a question about that okay so many nights i'd sit by my window waiting for someone to sing
Light Up My Life was actually the theme song of a movie, and I think it was one of the very first dying athlete movies, or it was, it was wasn't it, was it was an athlete, you know, who, I, I don't remember. Skater? I don't remember the, the movie. Yeah. Uh, I just remember the song. I was in the broadcasting business at the time. I was out of college. This was like middle to late 70s when this came out, and it was uh, Debbie Boone, Pat Boone's daughter, performed it, and it was a number one hit i think across several musical charts and was a hit for a long period of time and really skyrocketed her up and in her career i don't recall that she had many more i think she had a couple of more hits but nothing is um, outstanding from a success standpoint as you light up my life and it was a big hit and i, I bet i played i've played that on the radio a thousand times probably now the song yeah. hits of the 80s uh, are are kind of like a big band music for our generation. Yes, it's you know it's it's really old music. Yeah, I've heard that one of the interesting things that in uh, in nursing homes in old in in you know, retirement communities is that now as the baby boomers are beginning to retire, the the music the playlist is changing. So if it's going it's changing from big band, which was the World War II generation, to 60s 70s rock. That's right. And um, as I often say, eventually you know you'll go into a, a nursing home and they'll be playing you know Tupac Shakur. You know, mm-hmm. that's <laughs> you know you mentioned big band. When I was in high school, our band director uh, created a stage band, which was what we called a you know was a big band type format and we would play around and and play some of the the big band hits in the mood and things and one of my so another favorite song of mine in fact i sometimes request it when i'm at piano bars and they look at me because they very rarely get that as a request and they, they sometimes seem pleased to be able to play it is are, are some of those old songs begin the beginning i remember playing that in high school in the stage band. Yeah. yeah and uh and so that's that's one of my favorite songs your next one is Elvis Presley. Now, I recently subscribed to Satellite Radio. Right. And, of course, one of the interesting phenomena there is you have entire stations. You have the the, the Tom Petty station. You right. You have the Bruce Springsteen station. And, of course, I mean, there's no question, probably was the very first one they established. You have the All Elvis All, all Elvis. the Time mm-hmm. station, which consists of Elvis singing, but also a lot of reminiscences and stories about him, sort of mini documentaries. It's it's hard to for us. To, I mean, I, I he was before my era. I guess he was I, I, when I was growing up. He was in the Las Vegas era of, right. of his life, so I had not been around when he he was the, this unbelievable, right. you know, com- combination of every star you could think of in one. Per- <laughs> and also his movies, you right. know, which a few of them actually have lasted uh, pretty well. Some of the western ones. This is a particular meaningful song to me, particularly because of the title. 
memories. And there are so many different memories tied to this particular song. Number one is it's written, the song itself was written by a guy from Lubbock, Texas. Mac Davis wrote that song. Several people had hits with it, but Elvis Elvis had one. I was never a real Elvis fan growing up. I knew about him. My sister was a big Elvis. She was older, and she was a big Elvis Presley fan. The first movie I ever went to as a child was in downtown Lubbock at the Lindsay Theater, which no longer exists, and I saw Viva Las Vegas by Elvis Presley. That was the very first theater movie I attended. Uh, when I was a freshman in college, I had a girlfriend who was an Elvis Presley fan, and I was working in radio as a freshman in college, and the very first commercial I ever recorded on the radio was for an Elvis Presley concert in Lubbock, Texas. I still have it. It's horrible in terms of the quality. This is when of he it. was a star. This was back in the early '70s. He was okay. he was then a still a star, still putting out number one hit records. And so, as a favor to my girlfriend, I got tickets. And I remember her dad lived out of the country, and she called him to tell him that she was going to go see Elvis. And he said, "Well, that's really weird." Said. Elvis is older than I am. And she said, oh, Daddy, you can't move like Elvis can. And so we went to the concert, and I, I was just going because my then-girlfriend wanted to go. But as a result of going to that concert, I became an Elvis Presley fan. It was a great show, and I went to another one several years later, the year before he died. Which now brings me to his death in 1977. I was at the radio station. A friend of mine was in the newsroom as the news reporter. Another friend of mine was on the air that afternoon. I was the production director and an on-the-air guy as well, but I wasn't on the air. And so I happened to be in the radio control room. It was around 4.15 in the afternoon in August of 1977. And uh, the newsman came in with a piece of Associated Press wire copy in his hand. He said, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe He just kept saying, you're not going to believe this. And so he handed it to the announcer who said, uh, he read it and he goes, wow. And it was the announcement that Elvis Presley had died at the Baptist Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. And the announcer that afternoon, Bud Andrews, was, was kind of shaken up by it. And they both were kind of shaken up by it. And so they said, well, I said, well, I'll read it. I'll get, give me the mic. And, and so I reached and grabbed a record from Elvis Presley out of our record library, not really trying to find a particular one, slapped it on the turntable, queued it up, and it was Memories by Elvis Presley, which was coincidentally, you know, a very good song for that particular. And I read the, the announcement on the air, played this song, and then when the song ended, we joined the CBS radio network for Walter Cronkite reporting. The minute the song started playing, the telephone, we had three lines, incoming lines to the station, and they all three simultaneously lit up. And they just kept ringing and ringing and ringing. And the impact of that was uh, amazing over the next several days. Memories Press between the pages of my mind Memories Sweeten through the ages just like wine Quiet thoughts come floating down And settle softly to the ground Like gold of autumn leaves around my feet I touch them and they burst apart with sweet memories. 
song is uh, Don't Pull Your Love by Hamilton, Joe, Frank, and Reynolds. Now, I have to say, I have never heard of this group. I'm, I'm sorry. Well, I it's a, back in the 70s, uh, early 70s probably. Yeah, they had two or three hits. This was probably their biggest hit, and I just like the song. I, it doesn't have any uh, particular meaning for me one way or the other. I just like the song. I like the way it's uh, performed, and I like the, the melody and the beat, and it's just a song I like. Hamilton, Joe, Frank, and Reynolds, Don't Pull Your Love. Is that your radio voice? Oh, there? yes. Wasn't it great? Why don't, you, why don't you introduce the song? All right, ladies and gentlemen, now a great song by the group Hamilton, Joe, Frank, and Reynolds, Don't Pull Your Love. Don't pull your love out on me, baby. Notice that several of these, for example, Climax, Precious and Few, a couple of others coming up were one-hit wonders. I have several on my list that I could have easily added to this that were literally one-hit wonders. No, but they never had. And some of them you can't even get today. Well, actually, that's a good question. Um, the relationship between music and, and, and politics is, is actually a pretty old one, I'm, I'm sure. But in terms of one-hit wonders, there are politicians who seem to come along and be successful once. Or right. they, have, they have a moment. 
and then they don't seem to get that moment back again. I right. mean, there was there's a time, you know, they often say there's a time, you, you know, run for president, this is your year. Right. Don't next four years from now will not be your year. Four right. years ago was not. Your, well, you your just th- year. you think about. I, I go go back to the very last presidential race, and there were something like seven or eight Republican candidates. Mitt Romney became the ultimate nominee, but you had uh, Congresswoman Michelle Bachman out of I believe Minnesota. You had uh, Texas Governor Rick Perry. You had uh, the. Uh, pizza executive, I can't recall of his his name, out of Atlanta, Georgia. You had uh, the former U.S. Senator Rick Santorum out of Pennsylvania. Uh, and if you look at all those candidates, at some point during that primary season, they all were in first place at one time or another. I believe uh, Michelle Bachman won the initial Iowa straw poll early on before the actual caucus. Uh, all of the candidates at one point or the other were, from a polling perspective, in first place. Yet Romney prevailed at the end. You go back to, I believe it was the 2000 race, I can't remember which race it was, when Howard Dean, the former governor of Vermont, uh, I believe won Iowa and maybe even won New Hampshire and was the, was looked like the front runner, looked like he was potentially to be the Democratic nominee. I believe it may have been in 2004. And then he, at a campaign rally, issued that scream, and he tanked. And eventually, Senator then Senator John Kerry, now the United States Secretary of State, became the nominee. And so it's interesting how people rise and fall. Jimmy Carter probably would never have been elected president of the United States had it not been for Richard Nixon and Watergate. I have a question about uh, the Republican Party, and you're probably one of the leading experts in Texas and, and the country about the the politics within the Republican Party and sort of the history of the party's politics. George F. Wills once made, a, I think, a really brilliant observation, and this was long ago, that the Republican Party is a primogeniture party, is basically the next senior white guy in line gets it, gets to run for president. It, it has and, and been. Sometimes it's it's allowed the, the party is I mean, you know, was Bob Dole was that the right time for him to be running for president? Probably not. Right. Was was it John McCain's year to run for president? Probably no. not. Was it Mitt Romney's? <laughs> Probably not. not. And so mm-hmm. can the Republican Party break out of this mold of just like, okay, well, let's give it to dad. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's so and so ran last time, so it's their turn. We have changed substantially historically in the way we select president presidential candidates. Back By the way, I the, saw Mike Huckabee was like number one in the poll. Now I'm right. thinking like, wow, you know, really? That's, that's the well, next guy in line? Is there, well, yeah. uh, he is because he, of, of name ID only. Uh, he's on television a lot. He has his own program on the Fox News channel. And I'm sure he makes a lot of uh, appearances, you know, paid political speeches around the country. And so he's out there. But years ago in the 40s, 50s, into the 60s, the, the, the political party hierarchy basically determined who the presidential candidates were going to be. And the conventions meant something back in those days. And they were literally suspense-filled, smoke-filled room operations. 140 rounds of voting, you know, to get... Right. Uh Right. Finally, somebody runs. And And now it's all, now the political, national political party conventions are all stage managed and stage crafted, and and there's no real suspense as to who's going to be there. Sometimes the conventions would name a vice presidential candidate that didn't really suit the, the, the presidential candidate. And so it's all changed in media, particularly the technology world now, of uh, all the various social medias and 
our instantaneous 24-hour news cycles uh, have changed the way that we select candidates. And so political gaffes uh, can take you down uh, rapidly in some cases overnight, where 20 years ago they may have damaged you for a day or two and then you were able to build back up. But in today's environment, particularly as a result of the technology and the media uh, that we have now, it, it can't happen. So it, it, it's, it's a game to watch. It's a total different strategy in designing campaigns and uh, the primary system of, of elections. And you have to, uh, and the activists in the party, particularly the Republican Party, are more conservative than the general electorate, and the same goes for the Democratic Party. The activists in the Democratic Party and the primary voters are probably more liberal than the public at large. And so you have to play to those constituencies in the primary season, then you have to try to move back toward the middle for the general election. Your next song is Mercy, Love Can Make You Happy. And let's, let's hear that. Love can make you happy. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. Love can make you sad. Yeah. And, and but that's a but. It, but if think about that song, it's just a beautiful song. Vocals and the melody. It's just a. It's a pretty song. And then here's Mercy, a one-hit wonder. Your next song, Peter Nero, theme from the summer of 42. The summer of 42, I think a lot of our uh, younger viewers have never seen this movie, but it was a very, very popular, nostalgic movie. I think it was the 80s, 70s? 80s? It was in the 70s. 70s. Yeah. It was a yeah. movie about a coming-of-age tale, a young man, 1942, just right. about to go off to war, war. You know, the winds of war heading towards Ameri- America and all, all that. So let's listen to the song, Peter Nero, theme from summer of 42.
We've talked in this show before about how the playlist of your childhood gets sort of associated with certain uh, events. Now, World War II meant a lot to your parents. Your Correct. parents were the, the greatest generation. Parents were World War II generation. My dad was a World War II veteran. Yeah. In politics, there's the question of how you deploy nostalgia, because a lot of people, especially older voters, will think like why th- are things aren't as good today as they were in the the old the days. good old days the good old days. On the other hand, most you know younger voters, there were no good old days. There's just today. You know the good old days were you know when you were five. You know when you had a puppy. How do you deploy nostalgia in a campaign without it being a campaign about just the past and not the future? How do you say we're going to restore America? I mean, the Republican Party often has this "we're going to restore America" meme. You know, in its campaigns. Well, I think of a couple, and I'm going back in time. I'm being nostalgic in responding to your question. Remember when President Reagan was in office, and I believe... Morning in America. Morning in America and the shining city on the hill. Democrats still use images, videos, and speeches by President Kennedy from the early 1960s. We have a 40-some-odd-year-old man burned into our imagery as the president of the United States, this young, youthful, vital, you know, kind of guy as President Kennedy. And I've often wondered, had he not been assassinated and had he run for election, re-election in 64 and either been defeated or elected for a second term, how would we remember him today had he survived? We remember him as one of our great presidents, I think primarily because of the historic events of 1963. And so some of that nostalgia is brought back. The Republicans try to use Reagan as the model. The Democrats try to use Kennedy as the model. And so I think that's where you go back to some sort of president that had some uh, broad appeal and and approval uh, and try to emulate them or at least showcase them in your campaigns. Your next song is Joy to the World. That's a happy song. What's well, a fun? I always Three thought Dog it was Night. A, Three Dog Night. They had who a, are still touring. They still are. Yeah. Um, and and they had several hit records. This one was just this was I, I I believe I was a senior in high school when that was a hit, and I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed the the beat. I enjoyed the 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 format of the song, and it was just a fun song. I always enjoyed hearing it on the radio. Interesting thing. I, I'll give you a little history behind some of my um, my choices here. Is when I worked for a particular radio station, and its format was what we would call middle of the road back in the 70s. Uh, we had a we did we didn't have a necessarily a playlist. You could play your own music, but you had to do it in a formula. And the formula was you started the hour with a male vocal. That may have been Andy Williams or it may have been, um, you know, someone like that. And then the next song would be from a female vocalist. Then the next song would be from a group. And a group would be Climax or Mercy or The Letterman or, you know, some some vocal group. And then the fourth song would be an instrumental. And that's where I, I got to enjoy, for example, you'd played earlier Peter Nero, who's a pianist still active today. I saw him as a freshman. He came to Texas Tech for a concert. I believe it was in the Allen Theater. 
at the university center, as we called it in those days, now known as the Student Union Building. And I was fascinated by him and his music, and he has still, to this day, I think I've got every recording he's ever made. I enjoy Peter Nero. And Three Dog Night, I just like the song. Your last song, American Pie by Don McLean, I guess you could classify this as the most analyzed yes. and scrutinized and discussed about what a particular lyric means. Right. A that, relationship <laughs> to Lubbock as well. That, and that's one of the of reasons. Buddy, it's supposed to be about Buddy the day Holly. the music hall died is supposed to be. A, supposed to be. Right. I mean, I've never read it. Yeah, no, no, Don, but, Don yeah. will admit that. He has played here in Lubbock, yeah. uh, like at a Buddy Holly festival and things, and has admitted that that was about Buddy Holly, the plane crash. Oh, but I don't know where he goes to Cleveland and says it's about, yeah. you know, Cleveland. Well, I, I think it was, you know, the, 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 the reason you mentioned earlier in the, in the broadcast about um, Paul McCartney concert coming to Lubbock, one of the original Beatles. Uh, the reason they called themselves the Beatles was because it was Buddy Holly and the Crickets. And so uh, Buddy had an influence, probably very similar to what we mentioned politically about President Kennedy. I wonder what his influence would have been had he survived and continued in the business. Would well, he... as I understand, he, he not only was a very good songwriter and a performer and, and, and singer, but he, he was a very good producer. In other words, he was a very shrewd music creator and so the idea that that he he would have not just in his own music but played a strong role in shaping musical trends well he did i mean he did and uh and this song is one of the many evidences of it uh paul mccartney eventually ended up owning all of the rights to all of buddy holly's music because of his fascination and love for this guy who started this new genre of 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 music I like the song, I like the story behind it, I like the melody, the music of it. And then from a broadcasting standpoint, back in the days when you had records, there were a couple of songs you played and we called them bathroom songs. Most songs ran two and a half to three minutes, but Marty Robbins' El Paso ran like for five minutes or something, and Don McLean's American Pie ran for Lin- five Lin- or six Lin- minutes. Leonard Freebird. Or, right, yeah, yeah. and so you could put those on and run to the restroom right quick while the music was playing and not have to worry about brushing back because the song was going in. Well, Morris, you are a favorite of Lubbock. You've given a lot back to uh, Lubbock and to Texas and the country, and we thank you very much for coming on Tops 10. Thank you, Dean Perlmuter, for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's, it's been fun to reminisce. Thank you. The grass, the players tried for a forward pass with
the day that I die.